0: Well, welcome listeners, those who might be first time listeners or those who might be joining us again through, uh, maybe this is your um, first time going through an entire series with us, so maybe you've been listening from the beginning. But uh, either way, however you find yourself listening to this, welcome. Um, I, I know it's been a couple weeks since I've done one. Last week I I um, essentially went back all the way from Third John uh, you know, Third John Jude somewhere in that area, and I just basically went backwards and skimmed all throughout and I got some really good ideas of verses I wanted to do, but just nothing was really just resonating with me, and I, I remember one time hearing a quote uh, by Leonard Ravenhill said that if a man can 't preach with passion he shouldn 't be preaching at all. And I know for me, if I'm listening to a preacher who just doesn't really seem to be passionate, then I'm almost kind of like, I won't turn them off, but it doesn't stir me. And so if there is something that, as I was going through these passages, if there wasn't anything that was really going to be stirring me, then I find it difficult to stir you. Um, and so, you know, as I went through, I went all the way back, I think through Luke and I just spent about an hour going through the scriptures and like nothing, nothing was sticking. So, um, I decided not to do one last weekend, but as I was just kind of looking over these scriptures that I've listed, uh, there was a couple that really stood out to me for tonight. And, I'm, I'm, you know, excited to go over them with you. And it's, um, first Timothy five eighteen is one of them. It's the first one we're going to start with, um, This is one, I'm I'm going to read it here in just a second, but let me give a brief backstory to this one. Within the American church, at least, this is a problem. And I know it's growing, it's it's huge in Nigeria to have you know pastors who are worth millions and who live like it. Um, But especially here in America, there seems to be this epidemic that's going around in which pastors are abusing the scriptures and abusing the flock and living luxurious lives. Um, self-indulgent lives that are not in the image of Christ, not in the image of the cross, and the cross is not on their shoulders. Um, And so this is one that I want to remedy because it's been abused very much so. And in 1 Timothy 5.18, here's what it says. It says, for the Scripture says, "You shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages." Now, a lot of pastors, elders, people who serve in church authority and church leadership, they will oftentimes use this one to justify these salaries that they take, to justify um, you know these extravagant lifestyles that they live, where they'll get you know. Three weeks, four weeks paid vacation and they'll get a parsonage and they'll get a salary of like 50, 60, $70,000 in a lot of places, at least from what I've heard and I've witnessed, um, the starting salary of a base salary of a small church is roughly about $50,000. Let me just say, I have 11 children. And I don't even make half that. Now, Jen and I have set up our lives in such a way where we, we are debt-free uh, for the most part. There's a few little things here and there, like we just got done building a small little cottage for my son um, to go into. it doesn't even have a bathroom, doesn't have a kitchen. It's just one room for him to go to and just kind of you know prepare him to get out from the house. But I find it really difficult to believe that a, a pastor can receive a, a house, can receive gas allowance can receive mileage write-offs, can receive even tax write-offs, can receive a $50,000 salary and get paid vacation, and that that's just covering his needs. I find that very difficult to believe. And here's why I say that. A lot of people I hear oftentimes are like, well, he does a lot. He deserves it. Well, I'm sorry. What I deserve is hell. That's what you and I deserve. But God, being rich in his mercy, chose to not give me what I deserve by putting that on Jesus who bore the cross for my sake. And then he calls those who li- who um, serve in church leadership to bear the cross at a greater extent than the flock. So how are we doing that when we're getting, quote unquote, what we deserve? You see, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Let me back up in First Timothy 5 and read what it says in verse 17. Because I think this is very important to establish in eighteen. Then we're going to go back into Deuteronomy twenty five where it talks about this quote, and then we're going to go to what Paul says again um, in First Corinthians chapter nine. Now Paul's also writing this to Timothy, and here's what he says, in starting in verse seventeen. He says, Let the elders who rule well, so that's the first qualifier, they have to be ruling well. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now I'm all for honoring elders. The elders who labor intensively in teaching and preaching, who rule well, who expound the word of God and truth, who are there for their flock, who serve their flock. I'm all for double honor. In fact, that's the only time you're going to find this passage or that's that um, referenced towards anyone. Double honor. To show honor means to show somebody that they have value. And he says to the elders who rule well and who labor, especially in teaching and preaching the word of God, they are to receive double honor. I'm all for that. What I'm not for is abusing the identity of the cross from those who claim the name of Jesus Christ and are supposed to be the examples to the flock, not for worldly gain, not even for worldly applause but for the glory of God and this is going to come into play in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 9 through 19 when Paul talks about this exact same thing but I want you to to listen very carefully to what this says he says for the scripture says in Deuteronomy 25 14 you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain now, let me just break that one down for you real quick what is What is he talking about here? He's talking about essentially that when an ox was plowing the field and was doing the work for the farmer, it says that he is to be able to share in the harvest of what's going. So as he's plowing, he's able to kind of take a little bit of, of, um, what does he say? Muslim ox when it treads out the grain. He's able to take a little bit of the grain as he's going to keep his strength up so that he can keep going and keep plowing. Now, here's the difference, because if we were to relate this to today, what we would be doing is we would say, hey, take that that yoke off of you and let's go ahead and set up this little umbrella over here to shade you. And It's going to have some nice little iced tea over here or some lemonade, if that's more you fancy. And it's going to be iced. I mean, I know it's hot out there, but we're going to make your life super comfortable. So why don't you go ahead and just take that yoke off, stop for a little bit, kick your feet up over here, take a little siesta if you need to. If you want to, we can take some palm branches and we'll start fanning the oxen. How absurd would that be? What do we expect oxen to do? We expect them to work. We expect them to go out there and to plow the field because that's what their intent is. That's what they were designed for. That's why the farmer has them. And it says... How foolish of us to think that we should prevent them from taking a little bit of the grain to sustain their energy level, but not to put it in their pockets. And I say that because of what 2 Corinthians 9 says, that seed is meant for sowing. It's not something that's supposed to be just put back in our pockets. The ox isn't picking up the grain and putting it in his pockets for a later date. He's taking what he needs in order to sustain the work. That's what this is all about. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 14. you You're to I'm sorry, verse 4 is going to say the exact same thing. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Or when it is treading out the grain. But here's the thing I want you guys to see. If you don't know this by now, then you need to have an understanding and a revelation of understanding that the Old Testament is a physical picture of something that is supposed to be spiritually applied. Here's what I mean by that. First Corinthians nine nine through ten. Here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now listen very carefully. Is it for the oxen that God is actually concerned? Like, is, is it really that God just has this this beef, no pun intended, towards the oxen to say, hey, you know what? I just have I just have this really thing this thing for oxen. I like I I, I have pictures of oxen all over my walls in heaven. No. The oxen are supposed to represent something in the law. It paints a spiritual picture of those who on their backs, who have the yoke on their backs, are the ones who are plowing the field and doing the work. Here's what he says. Is it for the oxen? Uh, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the ploughman should plow in hope, and the thresher hope or thresh, in hope of sharing in the crop. He says, this was written about us. The plowman, the one who are going out and doing the work, we should be able to have this right to take a little bit for the sake of our livelihood to sustain our strength and our needs. But he does not say, to give a self-indulgent, luxurious lifestyles. Because James 4 actually, I'm sorry, James 5, well, 4 does too. James 5 rebukes that among the brothers and sisters. That's what it says going on to verse 14 of First Corinthians chapter 9. In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, this is a Greek word zao for living. It's a verb that's there which means that it has this action attached to it. So it's not just the, the, the state of life. It is the state of breathing. This is what the word breaks down to mean. It's the state of having breath. It's the state, essentially, of what he's saying is, whatever is going to be able to sustain your life, it should be provided. That those who plow should have that right to be able to have their food, drink, and clothing provided to them. Now, why do I say those three things? Because Jesus in Matthew 6 says those exact same things. When he talks about those things that are the necessities of life, that you need to sustain the breath of life, of continually breathing in life, it does not say that the things that will supply you a nice, luxurious, easygoing type life, it says it's the things that will sustain your life and your ability to breathe. And what is it that man needs? One, food. Two, drink. Three, clothing. Why would clothing have anything to do with it? Because God does not want us walking around in open shame. So the point is, whatever is needed for us to be able to live this life in the way that God has commissioned us in the example of the cross of Christ. Because I can tell you, Paul warns us and Peter warns us about people are going to be coming and preaching a message thinking that gain is godliness. And they're going to be using people to make their lives better. You know what that is not the example of christ and his cross kind of for paul's perspective on how he took this one let's keep in first corinthians chapter nine and i want to read starting in 12b here's what he says now remember an elder or somebody who who serves in church leadership I am in no way saying they do not have a right, a God-given right, to have their needs provided. That which would sustain their life. I'm sorry, $50,000 salary at the base minimum, and a free house, and all the stuff that comes with perks on it, is not this. We have twisted it into something that it's not. But he says this. Here's Paul's perspective. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything. Rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Notice what do they get? They get food. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Again, food. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor my I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Why does Paul seem to be so adamant about making sure that he did not utilize the right that he had to be able to have a living provided for him from the gospel. To have food and drink and clothing provided for him by the gospel. Why was he so adamant? I'll tell you why. Because he says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 12-15. And what I am doing, I will continue to do. This is Paul speaking. In order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. He's talking about these so-called super apostles. These ones who are trying to make much of the church of Corinth so that they would make much of them. They're using them in order to get from them something that makes their lives easier. And Paul says... Man, in no way do I want to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of the, of the gospel. So I will preach it free of charge. I will come asking you to provide these things for me. Because I don't want you thinking that I'm in it for the money. So he goes on. He says, for such men are false apostles. Let, me, let that sink in real quick. I'm not saying that any pastor out there who takes a salary. Maybe even a little bit exorbitant. I'm not saying that they're all false apostles. What I will say is it better raise a very large red flag. If you have anybody who is serving the position of church leadership and they are taking a salary for their own self-indulgence and worldly lifestyle. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising them so you could actually say that they're deceitful plowmen. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. It's a very serious thing to abuse the name of Christ and the cross of Christ. Paul talks about it again in Philippians 3 and he says that there's many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Notice they don't walk as enemies of Christ by word. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What is the cross? It means self-denial. It's not having your best life now. It's not getting everything that you want in this life. It's actually the opposite because if you want to follow Jesus Christ, Luke 9.23 says that if you want to come after him, that you must deny yourself and pick up that cross daily. To follow him. So if you are not denying yourself and you're actually under a pastor who is indulging himself, that is a false apostle and it is somebody that is a deceitful workman disguised as an apostle of Christ. Here's what Paul said, or uh, what Jesus says. Starting in Matthew chapter 10 in verse 9, he goes on into verse 10. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your your belts, no bag for your journey or, or two tunics or sandals or staff for the laborer deserves his food. Notice what Jesus is saying here. He says, I don't want you to trust in what can be provided for you by others or even by yourself. I want you to trust in me. I don't want you to have two tunics. Just take the one. I don't want you to have an extra pair of sandals. Just take the one. He says... I want you to trust me and to live a life reflective of the cross of Christ. And I will provide. You see, I I believe that an elder or anyone who serves in church leadership has a right for the needs to be provided. A laborer deserves his wages. He deserves his meat, as the King James would put it, or his food. The ox should get a little of the grain as he's treading out. But you know what? Nothing more than that is promised. Nothing more than that is commanded by the Lord to be given. So if you're one who uses this passage to try to endorse this concept of getting your best life now. And let me just tell you, there's a high chance that you are a false apostle, a false teacher, a false preacher. As I believe it's in Second Peter, he says just as there was false prophets among the people of Israel, there will be false teachers among us. And we need to know the difference. And this is a huge red flag to know the difference between somebody who is a false apostle, teacher, or preacher of Christ and somebody who's genuine. Because even Jesus did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Next one, this one actually is probably going to take a little less time to go over, but the, how profound this one really is, um, I think cannot be under, it, it can't be overstated. Um, we need to understand this one because there is so much truth to unpack from it. When we understand it in truth. And this is going to be second Peter chapter three, verse nine. Here's what the verse says. The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now I hear this one, here's why I chose this one. I hear this one oftentimes used to reference people of this world um, that God doesn't want anyone out there to perish. He doesn't want any person who's out there to perish. And while I believe that to be a true statement, because of verses such as I think it's in 1 Timothy where he talks about it and he says that his desire is for all to be saved. I believe that's a true statement. And I believe that's somewhat of a takeaway that you could get from this. However, contextually, that's not what Peter's writing here. I want to back up into verse 8, and I want us to see something real quick. But before I even do that, I want to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and tell you who Peter is writing to. He says this, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of of Jesus Christ, to those, this is who he's writing to, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, to the one that... God is the one who has sent Jesus to be this access unto righteousness, that through faith I have this access unto this righteousness by which I can stand before him. So he's writing this letter to believers who have obtained a faith of equal standing as theirs and have been placed in this category of people throughout the world who are called the Beloved. And as such, as the beloved of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have access into this righteousness through Jesus Christ to be able to come and stand before him. Is what Romans 5, 1 through 2 talks about, that we have been justified by faith, and now we have access through Jesus Christ to come into this righteous garment to which it clothes us so that as Hebrews, I believe it was what, Hebrews 4 Talks about where it says that we can, or um Hebrews, yeah, Hebrews 4. Um, where it says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. How can we come boldly before the throne of grace to receive a help in time in need? Through Jesus Christ. And the garments, the access to those garments that He's given to us, but just as Revelation 16, I believe it's in 14 or 15, Jesus says, keep your garments on. You see, we haven't uh, an obligation to make sure we're abiding in him that's when we can come boldly before the throne if we're not abiding in him then don't think you can come boldly before the throne so that's kind of a brief little rundown on who he's writing to what we as the beloved have received now i'm going to go back to verse eight and listen to this again i'm not saying that this is not a truth for all people that god doesn't want all people to perish and that he wants all people to come to repentance But I believe contextually, this is referencing a very specific group of people, and that is Christians. And when I understand that, it changes the dynamic of this passage. If I don't understand it, it changes the dynamic of this passage. And it very easily could be missed and lead us into things that are not true. Here's what he says. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you. Now who is the context of who he's writing to and who has he um, directed our attention to very specifically? To the beloved and to you. Those whom he's writing to who have obtained a faith of equal standing. And he says this. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, it's fascinating to me to know that if I itemize the context of the passage, if I I specify the context of the passage, he is very clearly referencing the beloved, the church. And he says, among you, I don't want any of you to perish Now why would he be saying this? Well you're going to have to go back into chapter 3, 1 through 7 to find out because he's talking about this concept of people coming in and things that are happening that are going on that are going to try to lead people away from the truth. To lead people away from Christ. And to try to get them to compromise and get them to, to walk away from the faith. Or to be tempted to walk away from the faith. And that's why it goes in. But do not overlook this one fact beloved: That one day is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. God doesn't want any of you to perish. But that you would all reach repentance if you find yourself in this trap. And here's what he says in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He's giving the church a warning. See, this is why it's important for us to be able to understand that this is not something in which it's to the world. And it's a warning to the world. This is a warning specifically to the church. And if you don't believe me that Jesus would be giving a warning to his church through the hand of Peter, let's see what Jesus says to his church by his own hand. I mean, obviously it's through the hand of John, but these are his words that John is writing down. Revelations 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church in Ephesus. You could go fast forward it to verse 16, in which he's talking to the church in Pergamum. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He goes on again to the church in Thyatira. He says in verse 21, "Uh, if I can find it, I gave her time to repent on Mount Jezebel but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. The church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know at what hour I will come against you. I don't know if any of you have ever read the Old Testament, but you're going to find that it is not out of the realm of possibility for God to come against his own people. And Jesus is saying the exact same thing. And notice the terminology. He says that I will come against you. Um, I will come like a thief. And that comes into play in just a little bit. and I'm going to reread that. The church of Philadelphia, verse 19. He says, I'm sorry, the church in Laodicea, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous. And repent. You find the exact same thing. Now, let me read the following verses to what this says, and you're going to find a similar correlation. And a new earth in which righteousness dwells, which I think is a very important thing because he says righteousness is going to dwell there. And as Paul says in Galatians 5, 5, we wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness, meaning he has not been made righteous yet. He's been given access to the garments, but he has not been made righteous yet. Yet. He's still waiting for it. And if he's waiting for it, that means he has not received it. And as Second Timothy 4, 7-8 through 8 says, it says he kept the faith, he fought the fight, and he finished the race. Henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You see, you have not been awarded that crown yet. You have access through the blood of Christ to be able to come to God. But if you are not in him, and if you are not abiding in him, and don't think you get to come before him with boldness. And this one he says in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, because of all of these things. Because if everything it says that God doesn't desire any of you, my beloved, to perish. But that you would reach repentance. That's his will. But it's going to come on you of whether or not you will repent or not. Which is what James 4, 1-10 through is all about. You and I, as his beloved, have the obligation to repent. But if we choose not to, heed this warning, Peter says, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and you will not know at what day it comes. So you better make sure that you get your act together. You better make sure that you're ready at any given time to make sure that if you've got something on your ledger, you better confess it and you better repent of that. And if you do that, as 1 John 1.9 says in the present tense, not a past tense as if that was just your verse of coming to know him and coming into salvation. John writes it 60 years after his conversion. And he says, present tense, if we confess our sins, not if we confessed our sins, he was faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But notice the condition that's attached to it. If, and if you do not, the negative inference would be true. That you would have a mark on your ledger, unrighteousness, a stain, or a blot, or a spot, whatever you want to call it, a blemish. You would have these against you. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot, spot, Or blemish. He says look. If you are in a state of being unrepentant towards sin. And that day comes upon you. You better darn well know that you're going to give an account before a holy God. This is what Hebrews 10.26-31 is all about. And it's not going to be pretty. You might still be in Christ. And your name might still be in the book of life. Because it's not necessarily based off your performance. But your position in him. But you will give an account. Don't don't give in to this whole, I've been made the righteousness of Christ and therefore when God sees me, all he sees is just the blood of Christ because that's not true. It could be true, but it's not unequivocally true. Don't give in to this whole, my past, present, future sins have been wiped away and forgiven at the cross. So now when God sees me, he doesn't see my sin. I think scripture very clearly indicates that he does. Let's go back to what Jesus' own words are in Luke chapter 12. And just a little bit of a um, backing up in that one. I want to I take you to chapter 12 and I'm going to read 35 through 40. But I want you to see what he says in verse 22. And he said to his disciples. Who's he talking to in all this? He's talking to his disciples. In verse 31, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Notice the food, drink, and clothing. We talked about that one previously. That is all that God promises to provide. He goes on in verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Notice the terminology that he uses. He uses a word, stay, which means that they have already been dressed for action. And he uses a word, keep. Which means that it's already lit. So stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he knocks. Very key point here. Jesus is going to be the one knocking on the door. It's our job to open it to him. Now, if you're a Calvinist and you're listening to this one, that's probably going to throw a little wrench into some of your little thoughts and theories that are out there. Because you would probably state that Jesus is the one who knocks and opens and walks himself in and we do nothing because, well, you know what, we're just dead. But this very clearly says that Jesus is knocking and if we are awake and we are dressed for action and our lamps are burning... And we're awake to hear it. Then it's our job to open the door to him. But listen to what he says right after that. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. But know this that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? Someone who stays awake. So while this might be a parable that is going to be extended for all people, I think it has specificity. Towards the disciples. So I'm talking to you Peter. So where do you think Peter got Second Peter 3 from? In his writing. He got it directly from the Lord. He will come like a thief. So we better make sure that we are ready. Church. Because when he comes. And he knocks on that door. We better make sure that we are awake. And attuned to his voice. And you could say very easily. And just do it as a cop out statement. To say well if you're really saved. You will be awake. Not according to scripture that's our job you can go back to the parable of the ten virgins in which they had ten um, virgins, five of them were wise and five of them were foolish you can go back and read what happens to them but the point is in all of this I think that we can heed the warning that's being given to us and if I'm just going to say that that's just a passage that's given to the world and I I can distance myself from it because that warning is not really for me I think you missed the point. And he might come like a thief on that day and you might not hear him because that is a passage specified specifically for the church. So are you going to be awake when he comes? It's easy to say, of course I will be. But I can tell you there's many Christians out there today who I believe genuinely love the Lord but are being lulled to sleep by the world's lullaby. Listen to what he says to he, in Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. And notice the context. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Let me ask you something if, again, as you, if you're a Calvinist. How can I have any responsibility whatsoever to make sure no one fails to obtain the grace of God if it is completely unmerited? If I have no responsibility whatsoever as to who will receive grace and who doesn't, then why does he say right here that I have a responsibility to make sure no one fails to obtain it? That's some food for thought. He goes on, he says, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Isn't it fascinating? He says that a root of bitterness could actually defile somebody who's saved. You don't believe me? Read the paths right before, read the, read the paths, read the verses right before it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Obviously, he's referencing Christians here. And he says, That no one is sexually immoral, meaning from among you. Or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And I think the warning is being given to this church by the author of Hebrews. In telling them, you better make sure that you're being diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish on that last day. Because you don't want to get into a position where you sell your birthright as being the firstborn and enrolled among the firstborn. Which, by the way, that's the enrollment in Christ. He says, you don't want to miss that. Because if you miss that, you won't have a chance to repent in the end. Even if you seek it with tears on his doorstep... You won't find it. This one he says, the author again in Hebrews chapter 2. And I'm going to end with this. He says, therefore, in talking about previously, all the stuff that we found was reliable from the angels in comparison to Christ and how Christ is greater than the angels. All this stuff, he says, it is reliable to understand. That the angels themselves declared all this stuff and it came to pass. Here's what he says. Therefore we, so the author includes himself, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, meaning under the old covenant, how shall we who are under the new covenant escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see, this is the warning that that Peter is giving in 2 Peter chapter 3. We must pay closer attention lest we drift away from it. Lest we incur spot or blemishes. This is why Philippians 1, 9-10 talks about it. That we need to approve what is excellent so that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. God is absolutely able to uphold his end of the bargain. The question is, and this is what scripture poses just constantly through the word. Are we? Are we willing to uphold our end of the covenant? The contract, which what diatheke even means, the word for testament or, or covenant, means contract. Are we willing to uphold our end of it? Because God most certainly is. And he will perform every promise that he has said. But are we willing to uphold what we have said? of pledging our lives to Christ as the Lord of our life. Because we have received such great promises. So therefore, it's our responsibility to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and soul and bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, meaning the world. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7 verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Second Corinthians five ten says that we will stand before him to give an account of everything we've done in the body, whether good or evil. And he goes on in the very next verse in eleven and says Knowing the fear of the Lord then we persuade others. I am seeking to persuade you in understanding that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us. He is not to be trifled with. We must not put Christ to the test, as first Corinthians ten says. So this passage in Second Peter 3 is not a statement for the world that God just loves the world and doesn't want them to perish though I believe that's a true statement. It's not the context of Second Peter 3. God doesn't want any of his beloved to perish. He wants us all to reach repentance but we must understand that that day will come and we must be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Y'all be blessed.